And I think it's really valuable for them to learn that like this, this meal, like one, you're seeing the work that went into this, but we also took an animal's life to, to have this meal. And you need to understand that. I think it's important to understand that. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nomad Strength Show. Today, I'm joined by fellow Idahoan, even though we're not doing this in person. There are most of the people that I that are my fellow Idaho peeps. I try to make it as best I can to make it happen where we can do it in person. And maybe we do another one in the future where we can make that work. Uh, but I'm joined by Pat McCurry today. He runs Idaho Foot. He was a track coach uh, for a long time at the College of Idaho, and we actually connected because of my former track coach at Carroll College, Matt Morris. Uh, you and him have known each other for a while, and he called me on a on a road trip one time where he was driving and just talks a million miles an hour and said, I need to hook you up with this guy, Pat. He's going to be a really good dude to talk to. So here we are, man. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited too, Ross. Great to chat with you. Yeah, so uh, we have a million and a half things just based on the couple conversations you and I have had where we can we can kind of take this a bunch of different directions and we will um but I want to get into uh, a little bit of the running stuff and the track stuff first because that kind of you know a lot of that was where you spent a lot of time in the previous years doing uh, track and field coaching and and running and you're a running coach and that's what you know that's what you do and then you have all of these other things that are kind of tangentially related to a lot of that stuff and outdoors and mountaineering and guiding and that kind of stuff. But, uh, where did the running, the love of running and, and all that kind of come from for you and, and how did that journey lead you to, to where you are now? Yeah. So I, uh, I went to Bishop Kelly high school in, in Boise and, uh, you know, played football. Uh, we had, hold on, hold on, hold on BK, Okay, that'll have. That, I didn't know that ahead of time, and I'm sorry for any hostility I now show you uh, for the rest of this <laughs> for the rest of this interview. Uh, that is okay. Continue on. BK, BK yeah. nights are some of the like most ruthless games and crowds I ever was a part of in my life in any sport. Were games where we played BK. So uh, yeah. you were there before I was, so I can't hold you personally responsible for any of that. But uh, anyways, go ahead, continue. Uh, that gets that reaction a lot from other folks from Idaho <laughs> that didn't go to BK. So. Um, <laughs> But no, grew up uh, in, uh, I was the youngest of four, went through BK, uh, like all my older siblings, um, played football, um, wasn't very good at football, but played, had an awesome coach there, Tim Brennan, who just retired last year, um, who's honestly a pretty mm -hmm. big coaching mentor for me, just as far as like coaching philosophy. Obviously, I went into coaching cross country at track, but um, his, sure. his basic philosophy, really focused on the process, like really stuck with me as I got into coaching down the road. But um, started running track my uh, sophomore year and was uh, kind of focused on the 400, moved up to the 800 at the end of my junior year and found quite a bit of success there. Uh, I got recruited um, then to run in college, which I never really thought was going to be a thing. And uh, I went to Idaho State my freshman year. And I mean, I, I had no distance running background. I didn't run cross country. I just was good at the 800. I was good at running like yeah. pretty fast for a couple minutes, you know. Um, 
sure. and started training with the cross country team. And like my mind, it was so over my head. It wasn't even funny. Um, had a great coach there named Brian Jansen, but, um, had some, some rough stuff happen. Um, had a friend pass away in my freshman year of college and just some different things. So I ended up leaving Idaho state, had nothing to do with the running. The running there was awesome. Um, but I went to Eastern Oregon, little town in Northeast Oregon and mm-hmm. the grand, uh, ran there for coach Ben Welch and ended up gradually moving up in distance, becoming a distance runner, um, ran pretty seriously post-collegiately for a few years. I went back and started coaching uh, my first year. I, I coached high school for one year after college and then went back as an assistant for Ben, started coaching at Eastern Oregon. And um, mm, okay. yeah, I just, I loved the, the exertion of running. I loved that I could control it more than you do at a team sport, like what happens to you out there. Um, yep, I think exactly. that was a big part of it. And then eventually, as I started moving up in distance, started running out in the mountains and trails, and which is where I always wanted to spend my time as a as a hunter and outdoorsman and fisherman. Um, so the two things just kind of blended eventually. Did you go through the the progression where, like you said, you started 800 and then you gradually kind of amped up the distance and then became a, a distance guy, right? Did you do the thing after where now you're like, okay, now I want to do 50 and a hundred milers and do like the ultra stuff. Did you go that far down the rabbit hole also? Not at all. No. Okay. Uh, I, my, <laughs> okay. my serious, my serious running was done before I even really knew that was a thing. Um, okay. But uh, but I do coach a lot of those athletes now, and I'm pretty yeah. pretty connected to that world through my coaching, and it's 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 pretty nuts, but it's pretty cool. Uh, some of the stuff yeah. that's that's done in the mountain trail ultra world, um, and uh, yeah, so so deep in that world now, but I was not as an athlete. It's I've I've said it a handful of times on the podcast, just talking about like the the attributes that that humans have the potential to really become great at, and like the ultra endurance thing to me is so fascinating, and I and I don't know if it's because I have this idea that it's something I would I I would never ever be able to do, therefore it's like you're amazing if you can do it kind of thing or it's like i think i want to do that and that's why i'm so interested in it like i don't know what it is but something about the the ultra endurance stuff just really is is cool to me and i actually have a good a good buddy who um i'll send you his page also but uh his name is james peratt and he has a a instagram account called wild hunt conditioning and he just Mm -hmm. did a he just finished up the other day he ran a 500 mile trail only run from California to Washington. And like it took him, I think he said it took him eight days or something like that. And did the whole All thing the only trail? with what he was. Uh, it might have been. I'm not sure exactly which one it was, but he he did everything with only uh, the, the pack that he was carrying on his back. Like everything he had was in that pack. And so he did the entire oh, thing like he carried his little, his little, yep, soul supported pop up tent, had his little water filter. So he'd fill it up in on creeks and little streams and stuff as he was going. It was trail only. There was no paved anything in the entire thing. 500 miles just finished up I'm like that. There's there's the cool level of ultra where I'm like, that's awesome. And then James is like, OK, you're a psychopath. And like, I just respect yeah. what you're doing. I'm never going to do that. But the the endurance thing has always just been such a cool concept to me and it's funny because like when I was actually running I had zero of that 
thought in my head ever, right? Like the longest thing I ran that was competed was the, the last event of the multi, which was 1500, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and it was the most miserable existence of my life at that time because of like, everything else, the, the final event of the two days of multis, like you're just done and you want it to be over. Right. But, uh, the endurance thing was really cool. And so then, so after you went into coaching, uh, where was it in coaching? Cause, cause you actually coached track and field for a long time. And then you decided a handful of years ago to still coach running, but do it in on your own and do it your own way with your own uh, style. And then you, you moved up into the mountains and now you do this guy thing. So how did that transition happen to from now you're like in the university coaching model and then now you're private, you're doing your own thing and, and explain to me like what all that entails. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I went from assistant coach at Eastern Oregon, uh, took over as a head coach at College of Idaho when I was only 26, which was crazy to be a head coach at 26 years old. But they were starting the program from scratch. Super cool opportunity. I thought I'd be there a few years and move on. And I ended up staying 12 years because I loved the community. It was so such a great place Mm -hmm. to work. Great people. Um, Yeah. And I went to Boise State as an assistant, went to University of San Francisco as the director of track and field and cross country there, which was uh, a fabulous professional opportunity, uh, but but not a place my wife and I were interested in, in being long term, just as far as raising our kids. So um, yeah. ended up uh, I was actually on a hike in January of 2020. Um, my uh, my wife had just got pregnant uh, with our daughter, and I w- we lived uh, the second year I was down there. We lived uh, uh, kind of above Mirror Woods in the Marin Headlands, um, so north of the Golden Gate Bridge. It's awesome. We had trails right across the, the road from us. I mean, there's a bazillion people on the trails, but there were trails. Um, and uh, I was out on a hike and we were kind of thinking about how, you know, we got pregnant a little sooner than we anticipated. Uh, my plan was mm-hmm. to kind of do my five-year contract there and then see where we stood. But but we knew we wanted to raise our kids in a small town in the mountains near big pa- big tracks of public lands. Um, we're just kind of mm-hmm. crazy mountain people. We just really value it. Uh, we knew it was important for raising our family. So, so it, rather than there's not very many good college coaching jobs in small mountain towns right next to big spaces <laughs> right. public lands. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty short list. And so, right. rather than kind of sit around and wait for one of those to materialize and hope the timing worked out right, uh, we just decided. I was already coaching a bunch of athletes on the side, you know, post collegiate, mostly elite okay. kind of post collegiate track people at yep. that point. And uh, we just decided to to make the move a little sooner and, and go all in on this. So yeah, we, we, we had our a home in Boise when I, we were living in San Francisco, we kept our house in Boise. So uh, of course I'm talking January, 2020. So you know what happened next, the pandemic hit, uh, <laughs> right. we went fully remote and, and we were back yeah. in Boise at our house anyway. I was working for University of San Francisco, but we were living in Boise during the bulk of the pandemic. Um, yeah. And during that time, we actually bought this house. My wife always gives me a hard time. We, we signed the papers on this place the day before my daughter was born. Um, so oh, we wow. were kind of doing a lot of things at once. And uh, we moved up here about two weeks after she was born, uh, which was pretty nuts. Um, but yeah, why not I found just this have all the, the life changes in one month period of time, right? Like just do it all at once. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was a decent idea. I don't know that we'll do that again. Um, but uh, yeah, so we moved up here. I was still working for the University of San Francisco then um, and ended mm-hmm. up um, resigning from that position in January, February of 21. And so then we went here full time, all in on this full time. 
So this this new coaching program and this business that you have now, it's still running uh, focused coaching and you have all different levels. I mean, you have a lot of people who are interested in just being better distance runners that are doing mountaineering, but then you also have like Olympian level runners, right? Like you still have some of the highest, you know, quality and highest tier level of athletes. So was was that the plan? Like you just wanted to coach running whoever wanted to do it, like come to me kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. So on that hike, you know, when I kind of had this vision, it was a lot about bringing my love for the mountains together with my love for coaching. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I do to, you know, so I wanted to be somewhere in the mountains that we could eventually get into outfitting and hosting camps and that aspect. Um, But I knew to get the coaching base built up, you know, it's very hard to make a living coaching only elite track athletes. Um, I mean, unless there's a company paying you to coach them, but when they're paying you, that's a very hard go. Um, So we knew we were going to open things up uh, to a much wider spectrum. Um, And pretty much immediately, we got a really wide spectrum and still have it. Yeah, I work with, um, Mm -hmm. you know, Lizzie Bird, British national record holder in the steeplechase, Marissa Howard, one of the best U.S. steeplechasers and in general women's distance runners. Um, I coach uh, some athletes. I, I call everyone an athlete, so just... Terminology wise, that's how I say it. But mm-hmm. uh, some athletes mm-hmm. who just just train for backcountry hunting. Um, I, yep. tra- I train some athletes who want to climb mountains. You know, I don't I don't train them on the technical aspect of that, but I train them on the fitness aspect sure. of that. So I kind of sure. put it like if you want to if you want to cover ground a foot either a long ways or a short ways really fast, I coach you. You know, <laughs> I like that. I like that. So do you uh, in the in the programming and the coaching and the stuff that you do? Do you program in a lot of the weight training aspect also or do you just handle the running and the road work or the trail work or all that kind of stuff or do you do a combination of both uh combination i don't do full programming for the weight room um but i do have some weight room routines that i've built and used over the years that i'll put on people's uh, Mm -hmm. calendars and they can kind of choose you know uh, if they want to do that or work with someone else i think I mean, right now I have over 30 athletes uh, working with me, and I think only two work yeah. with work with separate strength coaches. Um, oh, sure. So I don't yeah. do the full programming in the weight room, but I do. We we do a ton of like hip and core strength routine works, mobility routines. Yep. Um, so there's a ton of that involved. So it is it is overall it's it's everything. Yeah. So do you? Uh, I'm I'm curious too because you do so much work in the trail and the mountain realm also, as well as just you know, still on the track stuff with a handful of people. Do you, what are some of the differences that you notice in how you have to prep for training for mountain stuff versus training flat track race type speed? And just in terms of structurally, I mean, if you're talking hips, low back, ankle mobility, right? Like there's going to be a lot of differences. Like how do you approach those differences between the different needs that, that your athletes have? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Ross. I just ended up uh, on our Instagram. I do these Tuesday tips, these little videos of like training tips. And I've just been doing this series kind of working up how I organize my training components in a pyramid. I'm, I'm just, I organize like everything I try, I try to conceptualize in a pyramid, basically. It's just what works yeah. for my mind. Um, yeah. And really what's interesting is the, the, the first two levels of the pyramid for me uh, really, every athlete I coach does those two levels. I mean, there's going to be some nuance in how we do it, but this is just the very foundational stuff, like tons of hip and core and basic mobility work on the body end, a lot of relaxed aerobic running on the engine end. Mm-hmm. The next level is a lot of threshold stuff, um, a lot of hill reps for everybody. 
And then it's the level mm-hmm. three and four where things start to get event specific. And that's really where things diversify. Okay. I'm, I'm a huge, just in general coaching philosophy, I'm a huge foundational believer. I think I think yeah. in a lot of spheres, we over-specialize and get too specific. Um, and I try to focus a ton on the foundational stuff. But yes, in the mountains, um, I mean, the biggest thing is getting in the mountains, like getting used to running on uneven yeah. terrain for doing long climbs and long, long descents in particular are a much harder thing for the body to adapt to. Um, so yeah. most of that comes on the ground with our running. Uh, but we do have... You know, uh, so I work with an athlete, Emily Hoggood, who's one of the best mountain trail ultra athletes in the world. Um, I co-coach her with a guy named Paul Lind, who ironically lives in Chalice and is a just phenomenal endurance. You should talk to him. He's a big time, big time yeah. hunter too. And a really, cool. really cool, interesting guy. Um, so we co-coach Emily and uh, I focus more on Emily's, what I call the body side. So it's all the mobility and the hip and the core work. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's doing these hundred mile mountain races. Um, and so there's some specific things we do when they're, when they're carrying a pack for that long, like there's some upper posterior chain stuff that becomes an issue yeah. that isn't an issue for a track athlete, for instance, that we focus sure. on more. So it's, it's pretty specific where those differences come with the body, um, with the running, once we get to level three and four, things look pretty different. And which is funny because I think a lot of people will see what, high level people are doing and they think, well, if I want to be good, I need to do what they're doing, right? Because they're the best in the world. I need to do what they're doing rather than be like, how about you do all the things that they did before you knew who they were? Because chances are they were doing a lot of the same basic level stuff to get that good, right? They didn't just start running and were world level on day two. You know what I mean? spot on and the and the boring foundational stuff they're still doing the bulk of their training right but like yeah so like marissa howard you know like uh if if she talks about a video or outside a video a workout on strava you know and she does some Mm -hmm. crazy you know three by 600 with the last one under 30 and under 130 you know everybody's like oh my god and she's i got to do that if i want to be good in the 1500 or the steeplechase like i mean yeah we do we do that type of workout we do that workout like twice a year you know, but right. she does an 80 minute run up eighth street every week, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. But you're right. Everybody gravitates to like the crazy workout, you know, and it's, you see the yep. same thing in your sphere, I'm sure. So, yep. Yep, exactly. It, and, and the social media aspect doesn't make it any easier because you always see the ones that are the coolest looking ones, right? And like, ooh, I want to I do yeah. that. You never see anybody just like <laughs> doing real slow goblet squats with pauses and like real boring yeah. looking stuff, right? <laughs> like, But that's yep. what makes yeah. the difference. And that's what builds a lot of that to get to that point. So because now my mind goes to like really uh, I have this seared into my brain like the three or four, I say worst, right? And what I really mean was like, they were the most brutal on track workouts we ever did when I was running for coach Morris. And I have them, I have the exact day. I remember that being the worst of the ones that we did those days. Uh, so what in your, in your opinion, were like the worst ones that you ever did that you remember being like, I am dreading this day. Or did you have any, cause distance guys are like a whole different level of, yeah, it's going to suck, but I, it's awesome. Kind of a thing. And I'm like, no, this is just going to suck. You know? Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, for, 
for me and I think for a lot of, uh, you know, kind of more aerobic based athletes, uh, the stuff where we have to go really anaerobic early <laughs> is not in our wheelhouse, mm, yes. you know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You do, yep. and which we most distance runners don't need to do a ton of. You do a little bit in your sharpening, sure. you know, uh, but yep. those are the tough ones that I remember. And for a lot of athletes I work are the tougher ones. I mean, stuff where we do a lot of work and maybe the finish is really hard. Isn't that daunting, yeah. you know, and the effort's staying yeah. really aerobic most of the time. And then we're really hitting it at the end. But, you know, I yeah. remember do, you know, one of my favorite workouts to like prep a, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 meter athlete is, you know, two by a mile, basically really fast, you know, um, mm. with about equal rest. I mean, so they run a mile at about 90% rest five minutes, run a mile at a hundred percent, essentially, if you wanted to put it in very basic terms and, yeah. That's a doozy, and that's one that's going to jump on you right away. We did a very similar one in the sprinters for for Morris, where it was for four hundred, right? Because it was basically run a four hundred race pace. You get five minutes, and then you have to do it again, like a race pace. And the first time we ever did it, he didn't tell us that we had to do the second one until we were done with the first one. So everybody's like getting yeah, yeah. ready to be like, because that way he everybody knows to go hard on the first one, you know. Uh, but right. the the one that always just sticks with me, we called them fifty threes, and lost my mic there. You got me. I got you. Okay. It was 53s and it was five 500s and three 300s. And you had to come through the 400 of the 500 reps. You had to come through the 400. Uh, I think we had to do it like sub 55 and then just basically coast the last hundred. And you had five of those yeah. and then we had a couple minutes. Then we had three 300s and you had to come through the 300 sub 37, I think. So we're like, cooking and it just and just puke everywhere by everybody like it was just <laughs> I just remember everybody laying on the grass just dead on the track and so those ones always stick yeah. out but um I wanted to 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 talk a little bit more about the foundational aspect of some of this stuff especially as it comes to endurance because I think well I, I know because the the data shows us like more people get injured just running than any other type of exercise basically and a lot of that has to do with like really bad running technique right and not understanding volume not understanding pacing all this i mean it's it's because it's you would think it has the lowest barrier to entry just walk out my door and start running right and like there's a point to right, there's right. there's truth to that but yeah. for somebody who like is wanting to get into the more endurance focused world how do you start them out if they're coming from not even really being in that at all. Yeah, yeah. So a, a huge part of that issue too, Ross, is strength. You know, uh, most people aren't strong enough to run either high intensity yeah. or high volume, and they they get the run sure. load up before they have enough strength base under them. So that's why we mm. focus so much on, particularly hip and core strength. We just hammer it like always touching on it. Yeah. Um, really, you know, I want all my athletes who get to even like a a moderate workload to get in the weight room twice a week. And even if it's just doing the stuff I suggest or working with a different strength coach, move some weight. Yeah. that's not you twice a week is my thing. <laughs> and like it's that. really effective <laughs> if you can get people to do it consistently. Yeah. Um, but I think mm -hmm. that's the biggest thing is just making sure when you start, you're, you're doing some strength every time you run. And so I, I work with a lot of, um, you know, middle-aged athletes, you know, I guess I call middle-aged, I don't know, between 
30 and 50 kind of whatever sure. um yeah and a lot of them were like pretty good athletes some even pretty good runners younger but then you know life happens and uh you know they have kids and you know body changes a little bit metabolism slows down life's just super busy and then they try to start running again and they all get hurt and they're like yep what uh, you know i could do this when i was 25 i just go out the door and run and you know and, <laughs> right. and the truth is even when you're 25 you should have been doing the strength stuff too but I tell all those people, it is where we start, is like, you need to do some sort of activation for the core and hips before every run, and you do something Mm -hmm. for strength and or mobility after every run. And it might only be a two minute routine, but you gotta do something. You you gotta move your body in a way that's not running, because like you're saying, like, running seems so easy. Well, yes, but it's incredibly mechanically repetitive. <laughs> and the force factors yeah. are actually pretty strong, even when you're not running fast, you know? Um, right. So there's a lot that, that, that people underestimate about the load of running and don't prepare for correctly. And then the other piece is just what you brought up, not understanding like how to slowly build volume or slowly build intensity. Yeah. Do you, uh, when, when you're talking about these hip and core things, like for these activation things prior to, are they more dynamic movement based stuff? Uh, like what kind of exercises are you guys doing for a lot of that for the pre-run stuff? Yeah. So uh, like under our umbrella right now, I have like three different pre-run activations we use. Um, one's okay. the standard activation and it's just real basic. It's a lot of, you know, standing on one leg, doing a lateral leg raise to the side with this one. You get some glute med yep. activation. That's a glute med yep. is massively important for running, for avoiding IT band injuries, things like that. A lot of circles with your toes, you know, and up downs with mm-hmm. your toes to get the shin muscles activated and get the ankle joint moving correctly. Um, it, it's real simple. Um, and that's what we would use kind of the first one we teach people. And if they're just doing like a relaxed, you know, 30 minute run out the door, that's usually what they're going to have. The other one we right. do is called slow and low activation, which we do a lot before longer stuff. And I have my older athletes do more often. And it's a little bit more like kind of some Pilates yoga type stuff, like uh, a lot of okay. bridging, uh, very specific yep. bridging, a lot of glute activation stuff, um, um, so, some mobility to finish up. Uh, the third one we have is jump rope and bands activation. You probably can assume this is what we do before higher intensity days. So we're having yep. the athlete do usually three rounds of jump rope and then a TheraBand and we're doing the you old know, monster walks, lateral walks with the TheraBand to get really good yep. hip and glute firing going. So. Yeah, I like that. The, I think, um, and I'm and I'm speaking this just from remembering when we used to do a lot of like we called them EDDs, right? Everyday drills that we do yep. prior to prior to practice, and it was like the marching, and it was a lot of the pose running technique drills and that kind of stuff. But a lot of the similar uh, types of things. But what what's funny is because of this idea that running is so accessible, which it is, it kind of has this false idea where it's like I can just start doing it right like but the but like you said it's so mechanically repetitive so many people have zero concept of proper running mechanics and techniques and like landing on your forefoot directly under your center of gravity and cycling through like it like coach Morris was like the first person I really ever introduced this to me and I remember him saying like it should look like your feet are pedaling a bicycle all the time like it's that consistent it should look like that from the side view 
right? And then yeah. you get people that are flailing legs and arms and heel striking and just like, and, I, and when I see people do that now, like it, it sends chills up my spine because I just imagine how much that hurts to run that way. Right. And so from a mechanical standpoint, do you guys you probably imagine spend a decent amount of time if there's any issues mechanically trying to correct actual running patterns and mechanics there? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think most mechanical improvement for runners comes through strength. I still think that's yeah. that's the bulk of it. Like if you're strong in the right places, you're going to have a good chance to run correctly mechanically. But of course, we do drills, too. Uh, we do a lot of like uh, short acceleration sprints, strides, getting into fast running mechanics. Um, it is uh, admittedly a challenge in the remote setup to do like really like specific corrections for athletes. Um, I do get to see my yeah. athletes in person. I travel to, to races, not all of them, obviously, <laughs> with the number of athletes I work yeah. with. But um, and right. we have athletes. You know, we do do little training camps. Like we had a group in Boulder this spring, and I was able to go out there and spend a few sessions with them. We've had athletes come up here to do altitude training. Whenever we get those chances, that's when I'm like, okay, finally I can like <laughs> actually see how they're moving yep. in person and talk with them. Um, when there are specific things that come up, we'll have them do a little bit of video occasionally and, and send me some video yep. or I'll ask them to have their, their partner or their buddy, whoever's at the track, take some video and send it to me. And, and we can address most things that way. But, but the bulk of it is, is the right strength, the right drills, the right mobility. So does that change, uh, and, and I'm sure this is probably goes back to how you established the, your, your pyramid earlier from a foundational level. Like a lot of this is probably the same regardless of if it's running on a track and road versus hiking on a trail. But there are sure. going to be some, like you said, specific, you know, specificity differences when you've got a pack on your back and you're incline and decline versus just running with nothing on paved road or on a track right so uh what kind of load differences does that cause that because i think that's another thing like people go out and they start hiking and it's like you don't know how to descend properly and then your knees get and your knees and your hips get jacked up from shearing against that force going downhill at even increased rate right so like what are those things that you guys see and helping people get better at that aspect. Cause you know, there's a lot of guys, uh, you know, myself included, but a lot of hunters and outdoors guys that, that listen to this. And I imagine anything that can make them better when it comes to that is going to be valuable. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, it, you're right that the base, those first couple levels, there's not a massive difference for most of the athletes I work with, uh, though there's going to be a mm -hmm. big difference in, I mean, if it's a, if it's a, you know, uh, a guy I've coached for quite a while, it's a, a big time backcountry archery hunter, uh, with him, a lot of the early stuff is walk jog stuff or, you know, hiking yep. as opposed to actually running, but it's still aerobic based stuff, right? Is what we're doing is time yep. on his legs, time with his heart rate at a certain zone. Um, and then as we get, as we've hopefully done that combined with the correct strength, we get up to that level three and four, um, you know, we're going to start there's a lot of stuff in the gym that we do as far as like step ups uh, and also incorporating step downs off of boxes that I've found can really yeah. help with that. Um, before, before maybe a person's ready or has the time to go out and obviously what we, the final level is put the pack on and get out the mountains. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and you want to do some of that yep. before go time. Um, go actually but do it. <laughs> there's some stuff with the gym. If you're putting your pack on in the gym and doing step ups, but maybe instead of just stepping up and stepping back down backwards, we're stepping over and coming down and back up, you know, and it's a little tedious and monotonous, but I've found some, yeah. some little mechanical tricks like that. that get a little more specific to, to hiking with weight on your back. 
And it's funny because you mentioned like at some point you just have to actually go up and do it because even you can we can do your best to simulate or like develop structural soundness and strength, you know, like you said, not in the mountains, but at some point you actually have to go up and feel shifting dirt beneath you and learn how like when you're side hilling across. Right. Like there's all these things that you can't simulate in a gym environment. Right. As as much as we can, uh, at some point you're just going to have to actually go up and do it. So. Yeah, I would I wanna, say the other thing we do a lot with those athletes is yeah. uh, treadmill stuff. You know, get on the treadmill with the pack is, yeah. is an intermediate step. Um, yep. And uh, yeah, uphill treadmill walks. I've, I've coached a, a number of, of women, you know, postpartum now through pregnancy. And, and we mm. use that with them, uh, not with weight on their back, but just before they sure. return to running, we're just focusing on a lot of basic strength stuff. And that's kind of the first aerobic intensity we'll do is just have them walk on a treadmill at like 6%. And that is much easier mechanically on their body, uh, but puts them aerobically in a range much more similar to running. Yeah. So, um, so both both those situations, I like the uphill stuff on uphill walking on a treadmill. Do you do a lot of measurement of of heart rate zones when you guys are doing your training? Not a ton. Uh, I I do I okay. use heart rate with athletes in specific situations. I think when an athlete is coming yeah. back, so I just mentioned working with, with women postpartum, yeah. uh, a, a woman's coming back from having a kid, we will usually use some heart rate stuff because they're just at such a different place uh, yeah. physically in entirety than they were before. So we'll use that mm-hmm. to usually to make sure we're not overdoing anything, right? Um, right? And then if an athlete's coming back from injury, same thing. Um, the other case we will do it often is this time of year in the heat. Uh, you know, it's paces get kind of all over the place. And of course, heat jacks sure. up your heart rate too. But I found if we get a baseline for where they're at in the heat, sometimes it's easier to lock into heart rate than chase paces when it's you know, like I, I coach an athlete in Austin, Texas, and training there in the summer is just Oof. like yeah, absolutely brutal, you know? Brutal. So, yeah. so I use heart rate more in those specific situations. If an athlete's already at, they're well into a training block. Nothing's changed for a long time. Uh, there's no extenuating circumstances, basically. I haven't found it's usually mm-hmm. as necessary, especially if the athlete has some reasonable experience. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think uh, there's so many metrics that people get hung up on a lot that it kind of consumes and, and detracts away from how the athletes actually experiencing the training session, right? Like there's the, you know, I've, I've worn like the whoops and like all those things, which can be like helpful tools. But I remember, uh, I'm trying to think of who it was that gave the analogy. And I might, it was, I think it was actually, uh, Kelly Starrett and he had, uh, he had this athlete. She was a cyclist, I believe. And she was young and she was like one of the best cyclists in the country. And, uh, she, he said that, you know, she could train through anything. She was like a, just a brick wall, like nothing. It, she would come in and crush workouts and stuff. And she, and then she started wearing a whoop and then everything became around what her morning score was, regardless of if she felt differently than what the thing told her, her training needed to be yeah. that day, you know, like, cause it says, Hey, you didn't sleep as great as you should have. You're only about 70% recovered. Maybe take that into consideration with your training to buy, back off a little bit. But she would walk in. She like, I feel great. I feel like I could run through a wall. And, and so using those things can be helpful tools as long as it's not like we're relying just on that. So I, that's why I was curious about the heart rate thing. Cause I know that that's another thing that yes, it's helpful, but 
not every single thing I think needs to be dialed into like, are you at 70%? Are you at 67%? Like, <laughs> like I don't think it's yeah. that big of a difference unless you're like at the, maybe at the highest, highest, highest level of sport, you know, and, and you're trying to get like 0.1% better to win a gold medal. That's a different story. Right. But yeah, yeah. that's not yeah, like for sure. most people. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I found some things in running, some techniques in, in training that I call kind of self-regulating. Uh, you know, uh, threshold threshold is everything in, in endurance right now. I mean, in, whether it's cycling or running or swimming, the, the Norwegian runners have kind of found, they kind of cornered the market on true threshold training and they're crushing everybody. Um, and it's true. And really? It's always been the most That's important interesting. thing. interesting. I hadn't heard that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, so threshold, I mean, if you're going to measure blood lactate, like, a super, it's yeah. basically a ton of time spent in a kind of hard level, but not really hard. Like you could say moderate okay. work. Um, yep. So if you're doing blood lactate, you're talking like three to three and a half millimoles per liter. That's like the, the golden window. There's debate on that, of course. But if you can hold an athlete there sure. for a long time, you just see massive return. Uh, but the only way to really know that is to prick a finger and do blood lactate tests, which most people don't have the capacity for. Though I, I have, they're becoming more uh, attainable. I have two athletes who are currently getting them, and we're gonna do some stuff with actual testing oh, uh, nice. as we get into this fall phase with them, which I'm pretty excited about. Should be cool. Um, but there's a few ways to kind of find that zone, not 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 pricking your finger and putting your blood in the machine, and not necessarily staring at your heart rate the whole time. Um, one is to just do these longer progressive efforts and make sure you start really easy. So we do like a, we had to do like a nine mile progression run where the athlete's starting at like super easy, just jog the first mile and then pick it up a little second mile, a little of the third, and we'll finish pretty dang hard. So the, yeah. I know when they finish, we're going to be quote unquote over that threshold. They're going to be dipping into some anaerobic energy production, but I know we're going to spend a long time in the middle. That's probably right about there. Right. Um, okay. Because if they yeah. can't stop, they have to self-regulate. Right. Um, the other one is like fartlek running. So the basic, most basic fartlek, you know, pick it up for a minute, jog for a minute, pick it up for a minute. Yep. If you don't have the option to walk between or stop, you're going to self-regulate and you're going to end up finding that moderate zone. Right. Um, and the third one we do is uh, sustained uphill running. Just like I, I'm looking at Canyon across from me and I've had athletes do this over there. We got this gradual climb for six miles. Um, and we have an athlete, Oof. I'll just say like, you're just going to start easy, run up this, gradually put a little work to it, but you can't be like huffing and puffing. You can't be getting lightheaded. Right. You can't stop and walk and they'll just naturally regulate. And I know we're sitting in that zone for a long time. I don't know that we're in it the whole time because we're not pricking their finger and measuring it. But right. anyway, right. Th there are old things in running that if you do them right, you can find the right zone uh, more qualitatively than quantitatively. That makes sense. And, and learning, and it's probably more useful for the athlete too, to understand what those feel like rather than just like yeah. seeing it on a piece of paper. That's like, well, you were here in this zone for this amount of time. But if you're being conscious of what your body's actually going through in that moment, you're like, okay, this is, has to be close to that zone based on how I'm actually feeling right now. And then that becomes yeah. actually more useful later on, you know? Spot on. You're, you're spot on. And even if an athlete does have the, the means to get in a lab and do blood lactate tests and VO2 max tests, um, 
the real value of that is they most of them for lactate testing will come out of the lab going, oh man, I've been running way too hard on these on these threshold sessions. You know, like they, they all think <laughs> the zone is faster or harder than it actually is. Right. And, but right. then they you're you're spot on. Then they know the effort, and there's real value in that. That's cool. So I want to shift a little bit to uh, a little bit more of the guiding and stuff that you guys are doing uh, with with your yeah. company. So you guys do a lot of uh, like hiking guiding and actually we were just talking right before we recorded. Now you're a little bit on an audible right now. There's a bunch of fires happening. So you're having to adjust a little bit. But what is uh, what is the basis of that? portion of your business it's not necessarily like the coaching a specific athlete running you do these guide services and stuff so how do you guys go about all that yeah yeah great question so uh, another thing i'm super passionate about is public lands and and basic conservation uh lifelong avid hunter uh and uh lover of the mountains in the west and i see it uh getting swallowed up by development and population explosion Mm -hmm. and all kinds of things Mm -hmm. um and so I feel like bringing people to the public lands uh, into the mountains and helping them see all the value that 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 holds is good for conservation in the long run. And I'm I'm not casting a wide blanket bringing people in here two and four at a time. I know that, but I do think I do feel good about that ethically and morally. Um, I just want more people to value our public lands because the more people that experience them will value them. The more people that value them. Will be motivated to take care of them and policy going forward you know probably long after i'm gone um so that's one aspect of it uh the other aspect is i just believe massively in the mental uh the mental and emotional health benefits of being in the mountains um i obviously believe in training in the mountains for physical benefits but um right it's just people can't experience uh, some of the stuff that we can, be it in some of these high alpine lake basins with nobody around. And, and you know, I have a, an athlete I coach uh, who lives in San Francisco um, and her and her partner, um, they're super cool people. We become good friends with them. And uh, th- they do stuff in the outdoors, you know, they, they've done the national parks, but uh, she grew up in New Jersey. He grew up in the Bay Area. They now live in San Francisco. Uh, so they're pretty urban most of their life. Um, they came yeah. up here, uh, she's been up to visit a couple times and, uh, uh, he came with her one time and I took him, I'm not going to say where, cause I don't like to disclose locations, but I took him to an <laughs> epic place in the pioneer <laughs> mountains. Uh, yeah. and we went on this hike and they were blown away. They kept saying like, this is like Glacier National Park, but there's nobody here, you know? And, and, <laughs> right. and, I mean, just, it was, it was so cool to see and. I mean, the yeah. physical challenge of it, uh, the space of it, um, the presence of it is just so healthy for people. So uh, something I feel good about doing. Um, and and also uh, just from a business standpoint, you know, frankly, we want to be diverse. You know, we don't want to get tracked completely yeah. in one thing. Uh, we want to have some different sure. bases. And, uh, and I don't want to have to coach 50 clients at a time because then I think that erodes at the quality of my coaching. Uh, so by getting yep. to some of these other ventures, we can keep the coaching client base at a reasonable level too. Uh, the one thing that I've always noticed getting up into those, and usually it takes, I guess, I guess it depends on how frequently you're able to, to get into those places, right? Because for some people, it's like you, you get that sense immediately. Like the minute you get out of the vehicle and you're on like hitting a trail, like you're like, okay, I already, the air's different. Like I already feel different, like it's literally different, right? Yeah. The air is literally different where I am right here, especially if you're coming from like an urban area where it's just 
poison floating around most of the time. But uh, it usually for me is like, especially on a hunting trip, like we'll get out. It's usually like, you know, five or something in the morning. So it's pitch black when you hit the trail or earlier, right? Like when you hit the trail, you can't even really see anything yet. So it's usually after like several hours when I've already put in some work and then the sun starts to come up and you're sitting on top of Ridge somewhere on the first day. Then I'm like, okay, I'm good now. It doesn't matter how much longer I'm here. If I'm only here for like three more hours, like I'm good. I, I, I sweated for four straight hours to get up to this spot. Saw the sunrise basically like, I'm good now. And so those kind of things, I always think back to um, what what Teddy Roosevelt always said, which was nature's healing, right? And there's stories all over the place, like in all the biographies about him, where when even when he was governor of New York, like he would, when, when there was periods of like really high stress times or whatever, he would literally disappear and not tell anybody where he was going and he'd be gone for like two weeks and he would just go up to upstate New York and hike in the mountains as hard as he possibly could, like climb the craziest peaks and just crush himself physically for two weeks and come back. And he's like, I'm good. I can think clear. Like I've spent my time in the outdoors. Yeah. I feel better. And so like when you're talking about bringing that to people who don't experience that, that's always how my initial response is people have no idea if they've never done it like the clarity that comes from just spending time where there's fresh air and like mountains and trees and stuff that people don't usually have access to right and not a constant string of distractions and uh going exactly. into our, our eyes and our ears at all times so we have yes a, a, we, yes. we can consume so much information right now but that's uh not necessarily healthy and that, and that brings up another thing, too, because it usually does take me about half a day, especially if I'm in a place where, like, I have and, – and, and even in some of the places where I go, I'll get to somewhere where I have service of some kind, which is it's sometimes that's kind of annoying, right? Yeah. But, like, it takes me about a half a day usually of breaking the – I, I feel a ghost buzz in my phone, in my pocket, right? Like, cause that just happens yeah. with how much we're always yeah. on the devices. Like I always think something, it takes me about a half a day or maybe more before I'm like, that wasn't anything. I'm fine. I don't even need to think about it anymore. And then I'm like, okay, now I'm here. My, my phone is in my bag now. It's like, I'm not thinking about that or whatever else is going on back away. And especially when you're hunting, like you need to be looking around and being involved in, the, in where you are, if you're going to be successful. But yeah, it takes me, yeah. usually about half a day or more to finally get to that place. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think that's pretty common. And, uh, yeah, if you're say you're like five days in the backcountry, whether you're hunting or you're like on a trip on the middle fork or something, I, I feel like it after a couple mm-hmm. days, even you hit like this, like you are immersed in the environment. You're now a participant in it. You're part of it, yeah. you know? Uh, and then coming out yeah. that reentry can be difficult. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. It's overwhelming almost like to all of a sudden come back and then you hit service and now I've got 46 new messages and like all these. And then you come back in, it's just cars and noise and everything immediately. It gets. Yeah, I remember actually last year was the first time I really remember it hitting me hard because it was when it was after we came back from our elk hunt in September. And we were up there. I think we were up there five days. There's three of us. And just got completely skunked, but we were in just like crazy awesome country. We're up near McCallish area and, uh, yep. came back. And I remember for like a day and a half, I just had the craziest headache 
and I know it was just because coming back into all the more polluted air, all the just constant noise, all the you know Wi-Fi and all the cell data and stuff hitting you. Like it, it's real, and it's kind of crazy and scary when you think most people don't even realize that anymore. Like because they don't, they they're numb to it essentially. Right. That that noise has become the normal. Not not being out in the natural yeah. world how we were designed to be. You know. Yeah, exactly. So let's let's talk hunting a little bit because you I asked you before if you do any of the guiding stuff for hunting and you're like, no, I like to keep that a little bit to myself. I like that part to myself still. So what kind of stuff yeah. uh, do you hunt? How do you usually hunt? Are you an archer bow hunter guy? Do you do rifle? Do you do everything? What's your what's your choice? Uh, I, I, I'm not an archery guy. I probably should start becoming one at a rather late age in life. But the reason I never took up archery is off just because I was coaching collegiate cross country and, you know, late August mm. through September, which is the prime September, archery time, yeah. especially for elk, but even for mule deer, there's just no way. I mean, I was just always so yep. busy during that time. Um, but I have been on a lot of archery hunts with buddies and, you know, helped them out and helped mm-hmm. them pack stuff out and everything. But, uh, no, I'm, I'm a rifle guy. Um, I'm a mule deer fanatic, like mu- muleys are yeah. everything for me. Um, I mean, I could yeah. spend, my wife gets mad at me every fall because I mean, I'll come home and, you know, tell her how many bucks I passed up and she'll be like, why? <laughs> you know, I'll tell her, it's so all this buck was pretty cool. And why didn't you shoot it? Like. Well, I, I don't know. It wasn't great, and I'd have to stop hunting, you know? <laughs> right. You know, and I, right. It was day like, one. I just I'm love, not coming home yet. <laughs> yeah, pursuing, like, yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I grew up hunting more uh, on the west side around Riggins, kind of the, you know, Rapid River, kind of canyons. Yep. Uh, hunted yep. down, mule deer down around Boise a lot in southern Idaho, some pockets there that will remain mm-hmm. undisclosed. But um, so kind of like, uh, you know, more open sage timber pockets aspen groves kind of mule hunt mule deer hunting and now that i'm up here i still do some of that but we get into the real high country stuff here too uh which is a lot different different. part of the state yeah and we have the opportunity to hunt these uh you know wilderness units open september 15th for rifle and it's a haul to get in there but i'm a lot closer than most people are now and so i've just kind of fallen in love with that the last couple years to be able to get up there and you get in there September 15, September 20, those bucks are still in bachelor groups and the, the, the country you're in is just incredible. Uh, super fun. So anyway, uh, I also, um, I'm a big upland bird guy. So I have German short hair. Oh, nice. Uh, ran, ran a Weimaraner for years before, before, uh, he passed on a couple years ago, but, mm-hmm. um, so chase chuckers and Hungarian partridge all winter, uh, which now we can do literally out our back door, uh, so that's, that's that's cool. A huge <laughs> bonus of living up here, but yeah, I'd say those are my two favorite things. I mean, mule deer and yeah, and um, and upland birds. Uh, but we do small game. I, yeah, my wife thinks rat, cottontail rabbit meat's like the best meat out there. She loves it. So we we get cottontails awesome. in the winter. Um, I, I hunt elk some, of course, whitetails uh, some, but yeah, yeah, mule deer and upland birds are my big things. You do any uh, any bear or any other predator type hunting ever? Uh, I, I have just a little bit since I've been up here, um, and I haven't I haven't okay. taken a bear yet, but done a little bit of spring yeah. bear. I was hopeful I'd have a lot more time, but uh, May is the prime time up here, and uh, it, that is a very very busy time That's for peak me track with season, coaching. Man. <laughs> yeah, track <laughs> season, the start of trail ultra season. I mean, it's just yeah, yep. May and June are like my busiest two months in the, on the coaching side for yep, sure. For sure. Um, so I haven't been out much, but I've been out a few days and. 
I mean, I love it. It's just great to get out in the mountains in the in spring and glass yeah. for bears. And you're always finding sheds too, you know, picking up elk sheds yep. out there. And it's, uh, yep. it's just nice to have another opportunity. I am excited to get a bear at some point. I'm a, I'm huge on the meat aspect. Uh, you know, we, we, we source all of our meat from hunting, you know, either my hunting or some close friends and family or, or meat from my brother's ranch. Yep. We don't do any store-bought meat in our house. Um, so the meat's really critical. And um, I've heard some great things about black bear meat if you prepare it correctly and then using the fat yeah. as, a, as a cooking fat. It's supposed to be incredible. Yeah. So I'd, I'd be excited to take one just for that aspect. I've heard from a few people uh, – that canned bear meat is like the best thing ever. Yeah. And so that's like one of the main reasons I want to get one is so I can just try that uh, because yeah. I've heard how awesome it is and I really want to, I really want to try it. So there's a chance I'm, I'm trying to, trying to get something situated to maybe get some, a hunt this fall where I'll have a bear tag anyways, but if I'm in an area where I can kind of be hunting two things at once, you know, and just whatever I can happen sure. upon, that would be the way to do it. Um, do you guys, I mean, just where you are, are you having trouble with wolves up in that area a lot? Yeah. I, I don't know how much trouble, uh, I don't have a barometer for what it's like here compared to other places, yeah. but there's definitely wolves around yeah. and they've definitely had an impact on the elk. You know, uh, I would say yeah. that's the species that I see impacted the most. Um, yeah, I, I don't, yeah. I've seen some wolves up here. Um, I've seen wolves in Western Idaho. So yeah, they're, they're around and they're, yeah. they're something to be, to be dealt with and managed on the, on the wildlife biology side for sure. Um, but I don't, I don't know compared to other areas, how much of an impact we're seeing here uh, to other areas. And I only have like an, like anecdotal, right. But, uh, I, right, I, I mentioned yeah. to you before that your general area is where I've, I've elk hunted several times, mm -hmm. uh, in the past. And, you know, the, my buddy and his, and his dad and everybody that we used to go with, he would say, his dad would say, you know, he's been hunting there for 30 something years. And he said in the last 15, what the wolves have done, just pushing elk out of that general area, kind of like where you are a little yeah. bit farther North and Northeast of you. He's yep. like, it's nuts how fast they've changed a lot of the habitat around elk specifically like you know a lot of times deer a little bit in a different spot they're higher up can different little terrain they're not as pushed out by wolves as elk are but he said that's kind of yeah. like what you said that's the one that he's noticed the most is what they've done to the elk in that general area yeah i, th I think that's probably accurate uh, you know i've heard that from a lot of people who are mo more elk focused than i am um, and I think you do see elk. It seems like I see elk in a lot different areas than I typically would have thought, you know, 20 years ago yeah. where, where I thought they would have been. So, so you do, um, and you, and you brought it up with, with the meat and you're sourcing all your meat from hunting or like you said, uh, ranch that's, that's close to you. Right. And, and we're doing our best to do the same thing. Uh, same thing here. You also have, we were talking before, like, you know, we're, if we're talking about sourcing food in general and gardening and, you know, kind of this maybe homesteading yeah. approach, right? Uh, yeah. What does that look like for you guys? How does, how do you organize that on your guys' property? Do you have things that you enjoy doing more than others? Because, you know, I, I don't know, I've got, you can see a little bit behind me. I'm sitting outside now, but I've got some stuff. I got a little yeah. garden set up behind me and I got some other beds over here. That's got some stuff and it's nothing huge. We don't yeah. have a giant piece of property. We're in town in Nampa, but you yeah. know, try to make do with the area that we have. Um, yeah. Where does that, where did that start and how do you guys do that, do that for yourselves? 
Yeah, so we do have a pretty sizable garden out back. Um, we had an area, the previous owners of this place had a, had chickens and had chicken coop and kind of a whole area that we, we're not doing chickens. My wife wants to do chickens. I don't want any part of it. Um, but uh, we kind of converted <laughs> like, fine, a lot of that them. space. <laughs> yeah, we kind of took that space and it's a, a big woodshed because we, we burn well, wood for our, our heat in the winter here. So we store wood in, mm-hmm. the, in the structure and then the area outside of it we made into a garden. Um, that's more my wife's end of things. She, she loves it. Uh, she's good at it. Uh, so she does a lot of that. I, I'd say ever, you know, we, we always had a little garden too. Like when we lived in Boise, we had a place at East Boise, we had little garden beds and stuff. Yep. Um, we just have a lot more space now. I mean, so we grow a lot more. So we kind of went from the standard tomatoes and green onions and a little bit of greens to now we're doing onions, potatoes, uh, stuff that, I, mean, I kind of push the potatoes mm-hmm. thing because it's like, hey, let's let's not think of this as just our, our, our green veggies and tomatoes, but let's get something that sure. has some 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 starch to it that, you know, we can keep yep. longer too, right? They can keep potatoes yeah. all winter <laughs> once you dig yep. them up. Um, and I can tell you potato, you know, everybody knows like a homegrown tomato is like, it doesn't even taste like anything you're getting in the store. It's like so much better, <laughs> so different. Yeah. Potatoes are the same way. I'm telling you, we had our first same. batch of potatoes after last fall. Oh, dug up those potatoes. I'm like, oh my gosh, these are so much more rich in flavor. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're getting into every year now. We're just trying to grow something a little different. Uh, my wife's gotten really into things to plant within the garden. So she'll have like a row of sunflowers, you know, between things. She oh, loves nice. sunflowers. Yeah. She's ironically allergic to them, but she loves them. So we had to keep it a little bit limited <laughs> on, but but those right. will provide shade for certain plants, you know, in the hottest months of the summer because they grow up taller and they have these big, broad leaves. So she's kind of getting into that whole side of it. Um, That's cool. Our next step here is we need to get a greenhouse because we do have a pretty short growing season. Yeah. It's very hot here in the summer, yeah. but it gets it doesn't get hot for a while and it gets cold quickly in the fall. Yeah. So yeah, it's I like need end to get of September. It's almost too cold. To- <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's the next thing is we need to get a greenhouse so we can just extend that growing season a little bit. So, Do you, uh, as far as preserving and doing, do you guys do canning, preserving, any of those types of things also for what you actually end up harvesting? Or is most of what, I guess you said potatoes, but is a lot of what you guys do fresh stuff you need right away or do you do a lot of the preserving? It, it is fresh and, and my wife's definitely pushing the, the preserving and canning um, and she'd like to get into it. We haven't done much of it. Uh, she'll make mm-hmm. like lots of, she makes jams and stuff, um, yeah, that kind of nice. thing, but not true canning. Uh, most of that's just because we're, we're in the chaos years, uh, you know, uh, the, of little kids and, you know, there's only yeah. so much time and we're trying to grow a business <laughs> right. and about to have our second right. kid. So there's a few things that we really would like to do that are haven't quite gotten on the active list. And I think canning's one of them. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. We have uh, the one of the beds that's right over here uh, to my right. It's kind of like this whole area is kind of like our our salsa area is what I call it. Right. So, yeah, um, we've got like 10 or 12 different tomato plants over here and one of the things funny because i really got into it like i don't know three or four years ago was when we really started diving into the gardening thing right and i learned quickly that i didn't need to be the one that grew everything just the things that i wanted to grow and that we were going to be for sure to eat like other things i can go get from my friends that grow things or like the local farmer market or like there's a couple of those places that are like coming from family co-ops and stuff like that that are still good it's like i didn't need to be the one so like when it came to the salsa stuff it's like i do tomatoes really well 
right? Like I love yeah. those. So we make salsas and, and spaghetti sauces and that kind of stuff. I don't need to be the one yeah. that grows the peppers. Like I know yeah. plenty of people that do that, that I can get those from them. Right. So we just yeah. actually, uh, last week had our first full batch of salsa and it was really cool. Cause my oldest just turned four and this year he helped literally, he helped me plant and he's out here every, every day watering and he helped me pick them all. And then he helped me make the salsa uh, the other day and it was like really kind of cool to see it all come like full circle for that first time where yeah, he yeah. went to try it with a chip and he's like whoa that's good and I'm like that's what I'm saying man <laughs> so it was pretty cool yeah. to like finally have that one where he went full full all the way around and actually saw it go from literal seed all the way to salsa so I'm like yeah he's hooked now we got him <laughs> yeah no man seeing uh the connection kids have to that sourcing of food. I mean, I, I wrote a blog on this called providing, um, that talked about, uh, it talks about a lot, but reference that like the opening paragraphs about, you know, butchering up, uh, we, we butcher our own deer and everything too. And we're yep. grinding burger and how my, yep. you know, last year just turned two year old daughter. Like I'm grinding the burger my wife's packaging it and then she slides it across to our two-year-old and she labels it. You know, of course her label is just That's like awesome. whatever she wants to put on the package, but she's like, <laughs> and she right. sees the meat when I bring it home. Yeah. She's part of all of it. And then she gets to see it. And then we pull it out of the freezer and show her like her mark on the package. And she like knows and gets really excited about it. Um, mm -hmm. Just like taking her, you know, fishing. Like we, we love what we call creek time and I, I like fly fishing high mountain kind of tight streams just roll casting in little spots and you know not mm -hmm. catching big fish but super fun fishing and yeah. uh, we always you know try to bring a couple home to eat and uh you know her seeing that like see it getting to touch the fish out of the water and then I usually show it to her after I've cleaned it and like it doesn't have a head anymore and like now it's meat right. it's changed you know and she knows that and then we'll come home and usually with those we'll eat them like that night you know and she yeah totally makes that connection and I, I think that's so critical for kids so I know exactly what you're talking about there that's a good point too from you know gardening is one thing right but then bringing home an animal of some kind is a is a different and I think a lot of people are are worried about how you go about introducing that to young kids specifically right yeah. so yeah. this last fall was because I got into hunting I, I'm what I call an adult onset hunter, oh, right? Awesome. I, yeah. Like, yeah, I, I didn't, <laughs> I know I didn't, I didn't actually start hunting until I was out of college. And for a lot of the same reason, like I was doing athletics. I mean, that really wasn't an excuse. I had met a bunch of friends that did football and all these other things that still went and hunted. Right. But I never did. Yeah. My dad, my dad was a, is still a steelhead fishing guy. So that's what we always do. Like that's a yeah. big thing that we do. So we fished my whole life, but never hunted until after college. And so yeah. uh, this last fall was actually my first mule deer that I killed. And so it awesome. was, yeah, it was, it was awesome. And so when I brought it home to my, he was at the time he was three, like he was so pumped to see it and saw like, saw the head and the antlers and everything. And like same kind of experience we were doing the, I did everything myself on this one. Cause I wanted to, I wanted to learn how to do all of it. You know, I didn't do it great. I didn't do a, a yeah. super great job of it, but I was like, I, I want to be a part of every portion of it, right? And so yeah. when uh, we were, we did the butchering, I I did the the boiling and the the cleaning of the skull. I didn't actually bleach oh, cool. mine 
because I did a Euro style mount on it. Yep, um, yep, yep. I didn't I didn't bleach it, but I actually kind of liked the way how it kind of had some tan in it. That was I liked that. That yeah, looked a little yeah. cooler to me than the solid bleach. But he helped me pack the meat through the grinder and was helping me like do all of it too. So it was like when you were saying that's what your what yours was doing. I'm like yeah, that's exactly what we just experienced for the first time, and he loved it. So now he's got out yeah. here. Like he has his own little uh, plastic bow and arrow setup that he's out here flinging arrows like as every chance he gets now because he wants to do it. And so I'm like, I think the easiest way to expose kids to do it is just to do it. Like you have there's no real I, I mean, unless they're already super skittish and wary, like you probably have to be a little bit, I don't know, reserved in in how you go about it. Right. But. Right. Kids are fine. Like they, they, they understand a lot of that. We, we, I think we end up projecting a lot of that onto how they're Correct. going to experience those things. And like yeah. when I brought him in out and showed him the deer and showed him the whole thing, like it was bloody and it was cleaned, but it was, you know, it was there. Yeah. And he's like, okay, cool. <laughs> he's like, that's awesome. And I'm like, okay, all right, we're good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm no expert on, on this, but I mean, it sure seems from my experience with our daughter that a lot of that, like being scared of it or thinking it's gross is, is, is learned, you know? Yeah, um, totally. I mean, she does it every animal. I, I bring a rabbit home. I brought, I brought a two springs here, brought a turkey home, you know, and you know, she looks at everything and she's just fascinated by it. She wants to touch it. You know, there's certain parts mm-hmm. that I'm not going to let her touch because she's putting her hands right. right back in her mouth and stuff. But she's like, <laughs> right. she just wants to be part of it. She thinks it's super yeah. interesting, you know, and same with fish, same with everything. And so, you know, I don't know if there'll be a point that she thinks it's scary or icky or, or whatever. Right. We'll see. Uh, you know, it's parenting. We just take it a day at a time and <laughs> do our best. But exactly. But, uh, exactly. I mean, so far, there's none of that. Like, and I think it's really valuable for them to learn that, like this this meal, like one, you're seeing the work that went into this. But mm-hmm. we also took an animal's life to to have this mm-hmm. meal, and you, you need to understand that. I, I think it's important to understand that. So, and and I'm actually of the belief that the earlier that you can show them that, the better. You know, yep. uh, and so you know, like, you know, he was three years is two. You said like yep. they, that's but you're exposing them to it. That's what that's how we live. This is what we do. Like, yep. that's they got to be a part of, if they want to be a part of it. They got to be a part of it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's crazy. Awesome. My daughter is like she's amazing at spotting deer just because I haven't like showed her how to see spot deer or anything you know right. but it's just it, when she's around me i'm always like there's deer there's deer there's deer you know when we're driving yep. when we're hiking anything yep and so she just picks it up and exactly you know i right. think it was last fall yeah because my wife was teaching so she was home with me in the afternoon and uh we walked down the mailbox which is this i don't know 200 yards from our front of our driveway and there's deer all around us all around this place mm-hmm. and we're walking i'm holding her hand and she's like deer deer and i'm like looking around like you see a deer right now and i thought she's just you know just mimicking what i always do she's like deer deer and i'm like i don't see a yep. deer we go down to get the mail come back up and in the same spot she's like deer deer and i'm like what are you looking at and i'm turned and in the sagebrush like 20 yards from us i mean there i mean it was you got to be a pro to glass this thing up i mean the deer's head was just buried in the sagebrush it took me like staring at it for two minutes to pick it out and she found it like right away that's awesome you know so that's, that's another awesome. thing of early immersion man she's just exactly these things need that extra a lot of people eyes. have to learn as a skill <laughs> late in life like she just got it you know 
Yep, exactly. Plus, now you can just take her and be like, I need an extra pair of eyes, and you're the best ones I got. Like, yeah. come help me find Absolutely. something. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty soon they will be better than mine for sure. That's hilarious, man. Uh, so I have a couple of questions that I ask all the guys that, that hunt. Um, what was your favorite hunt you've ever been on, and what is your, like, dream hunt you would ever want to go on? Yeah, I think um, I might I might I might take a quite expansion on that if I could, but I won't mm-hmm. take too long. Um, so my I think my most memorable hunt was uh, when I was coaching at Boise State. Uh, yeah, I'd been a I'd been a head coach for twelve years, and then I went to an assistant r- role at Boise State. So my workload went down so much. I mean, yeah. one I was going from small college level head coach to Division One with lots of resources, assistant coach. Second thing was, uh, you know, my boss there, Coach Immels, Corey Immels, was huge on, like, life-work balance. And so he would always, like, encourage me to go hunt on our non-practice day. And, like, and I hunted more in those two years, uh, probably even than I hunt now, like, because we didn't awesome. have kids yet either. So, I mean, I right. hunted a lot. And I came in, uh, well, uh, closing day, regular deer was on a Sunday on, uh, no, sorry, it was the 30th. It closed on 31st, and Sunday was the 30th. And I okay. went out and they were in this, in the pre-rut behavior and I was in the honey hole and I found this beautiful buck, uh, and I missed, just dropped the ball, missed him. They rushed the shot, missed him. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. I was heartbroken. It was Sunday. The next day was the last day of the season, but I had to work, you know? Yeah. And I go into the office the next day and coach Emil's like, Hey, how was your hunt? And I told him the story and I'm just like, can't believe it. I'm still just gut wrenched over it, you know? And he's like, oh, and the season closed yesterday? And I was like, no, no, it's open today, but, you know, we got to work. Yeah. He's like, ah, get out of here. He's like, write down what – I coach the middle distance athletes there. He's like, write down what your group needs to do for practice. I'll handle it. Go go back. That's and awesome. I was like, all right. So I wrote everything down for my practice plan and, and you know, covered yeah. everything I had real quick. Went home, grabbed my stuff, went back up there. Well, then I'm there like midday and, yep. you know, I'm still in that pre-rut behavior. So I'm expecting to find some bucks, but I'm like, I'm not going to find him again. Like, there's no way. Sure enough, he comes chasing does around of the same drainage he was in the day before. And I snuck in there and, and got him. Um, That's awesome. And it's just like such a crazy, like, I couldn't believe I actually <laughs> found him. You never, that never happens ever. You know, right. wouldn't have happened if it was if they weren't starting to chase does. It's the only reason he was still exactly. around. But yep. So that was probably most memorable. Um, That's awesome. My favorite hunt was probably uh, a high country wilderness mule deer hunt last year, um, and I didn't, uh, I didn't shoot a monster buck by any means, just a, just a decent three point. Um, but it was the first one I've killed in the in the Frank Church wilderness, so that was a big thing for me as a as a public lands guy. Yep. Uh, and. Uh, I'm a small guy, Ross. You probably got that impression. You know, I'm a, I'm a distance runner body, so I can hike <laughs> yeah, a long right. ways, but I'm not built for carrying a lot of weight. Uh, right. And that's the first. So all my bucks that I packed out, I always do them in half. I pack out half and come yep. back at the second half. Uh, and yep. that's still pretty tough for me, depending on the pack. Um, but this one was clo- closer the, to the trailhead than, than most of my bucks have been. It was still a haul. Yeah. It was still a climb. And I had just gotten a new stone glacier pack and I was like, you know, I'm going to see if I can get this thing out all in one load. And, uh, and I did, and I wrote a blog about this too. It's it's the one, uh, it's called an athlete's land ethic, I think is where I talk about this, but, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, that was a super 
probably my yeah favorite hunt i was just i was really proud of it first wilderness buck first buck i ever packed out all in one load um i usually have to you know the, the reason i hunt with austin bastard shea who we're talking about you know is because yeah he's an amazing pack mule so i always want him around but you know <laughs> yeah. he, he was way too far right. away so i had to get this done on my own um so that was awesome and i think dream hunt for me i, I think is interesting I, i've had a few people ask me that question and you know, everybody else talks about like a sheep hunt in Canada or Alaska and stuff yeah. like that. I think for me, I actually tried to do this a couple Septembers ago is go in and hunt high country muleys in September in the wilderness um, mm. and be able to fly fish and hunt chuckers on the way out. Because there's a, there's a window in oh, there for cool, like yeah. September 15th to yep. I think chuckered open September 15th to so where you can do all three. And all of them I did it a little bit on this trip a couple of years ago, but there was wildfire smoke, you know, all comes yeah. full circle, the wildfires. Uh, and I got smoked out really quickly. And so I, I didn't take a deer, uh, but I did shoot a couple of chuckers on the way out. And I stopped in uh, Camas Creek and uh, caught some unbelievable cutthroats catching a release in there. So um, I think that's just because of the things that combines. That's kind of my my dream hunt. I just wish it was longer than like one day because of the smoke. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Those yeah. are awesome. Those are all good ones too, man. I, yeah. I, well, I think sheep, a big horn probably would still be mine at this point for like a dream. Really I cool. just think they are. I just think they're the coolest animals ever, man. Like even, yeah. I, I know some guys that are, I, I've seen some guys that do uh, just like wildlife photography of them and they also hunt, but they get up 10, 15 meters from these from these things and like the some of the most brutal terrain to get to and i'm just like and he gets amazing shots of them and i'm like dude these are just like the coolest animals ever <laughs> they're so cool we have a bunch around here i'm looking out my window at a, a canyon i hike in all the time and um i i see them in there and they're just you can't help but stop and watch them you, you just want to stop and yeah, watch them. seriously so cool and i we had uh, uh, i was hunting one of our i was on a wilderness deer hunt years ago with a buddy and uh, we ran into some rams, and they were in the rut. I think I don't even call it the rut with the rams. I don't know much about sheep, but right. they were in that phase, and they were fighting and actually ramming yes. heads. And uh, it was so yes. cool to watch. We just I mean, sat, we sat for hours. We forgot all about the deer. We're just watching them. <laughs> that was yeah. uh, I was just gonna say. I had, had my my dad always tells a story. He has a super similar experience. He you know when they're steelhead fishing, they do like float style fishing in the jet boat on the on the Salmon River in Riggins. And, uh, they were, I can't remember how far up they were. And he said the same thing. Like they were just off the shoreline of the river, like where, where they were yeah. and they kept floating right by them. And then they drive up upstream a little bit and they'd float back by. He said, we didn't fish all afternoon. They literally went at it for like four or five hours. And we just watched them the whole time. It was like, it was the coolest thing in the world. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, they're awesome. <laughs> yeah. Incredible animals. Uh, well, cool, man. I appreciate you making time. Why don't you uh, give out like the links where all the stuff that you guys are doing, your coaching and your your social medias, all that kind of stuff, so people can follow along. And man, thanks for making time. I had a blast talking and catching up. Yeah, thanks, Ross, so much for the opportunity. It's been great to chat. Um, yeah, we're uh, website idahoafoot.com has most of our information. Um, the other thing I do that we didn't talk as much about today is it's just kind of mentorship stuff. So I'll do like mentorship for younger coaches, uh, consultations with like high school athletes looking at college recruitment. So that's 
that's a smaller part of our business, yeah. but it's something we do as well, uh, in addition to the coaching and the, and the outfitting, but you'll kind of find information on all that on our website. Um, and then socials, uh, really only do Instagram at this point. So uh, on Instagram, Idaho afoot, and then my personal uh, Instagram, Pat McCurry. Uh, there's a lot of crossover there, but uh, we run almost everything through Instagram. So that's a great place to keep up with us as far as our training tip Tuesdays, all that stuff. Um, so yeah, Instagram and website. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Pat. I really appreciate you making time, man. All right. Thanks, Ross. It's been great.